Welcome to the Semper Reformata Podcast, spreading the word and contending for the faith. So our topic this evening is the use of the media to manipulate minds and change society. It's not profound at all. It's not about how the media manipulates minds. That title has influenced my presentation of the subject this evening. I think this is more of a call to discernment rather than an examination of mind manipulation techniques. That would have required some discussion on Gestalt theories, how psychologists understand how the mind can be stimulated by external signals. Incidentally, we learned that in photography class. Uh, and when you're doing a, a degree in photography or something similar, you will learn about that sort of stuff. Um, we need to do some historical research on Marshall McLuhan, the so-called father of media studies, the man who coined the phrase, the media is the message, in his book, Understanding Media. But all of that might be for another time. What I want to do this evening is to simply examine uh, the present situation, the use of the media to manipulate minds and change society, and to see how that's being done, and more importantly, to see what's being undermined and how we can be aware of it. Uh, Straight up front, I want to say to you that I have used some quotes from this book here. Dodsworth and Fagan's book, Free Your Mind, Laura Dodsworth and Patrick Fagan. It came out late last year. I can't fully endorse it, um, obviously. It is a secular book. It goes a long way to identify and describe the forms of manipulation that are being used against the general population on a daily basis, but it comes from a non-Christian non-biblical perspective and it contains strategies for resistance and it contains advice that we would not recommend. Ultimately as Christians we have to declare that one's mind is only ever free in Christ. Uh, Without him our minds are in captivity, in captivity to sin. The book of Isaiah chapter 26 and verse 3 says, I will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stead on thee, because he trusteth in thee. And that's really the message that this book doesn't convey. So I've split the talk into three sections, just for convenience. I want, first of all, to identify the battleground, the battleground of ideas, and to define just what it is, that the predator classes, the nudge units, the behavior modification scientists, what it is that they want to change. And then after that, I want to look at the techniques that they are using. And that section will be largely anecdotal with some hopefully relevant quotes and some insights. And finally, the end of the third section, we look at a Christian response, a Christian strategy to help us to guard our minds and our hearts from this satanic form of attack. So, I hope that at the end of this, we will have some insight into how your mind can be manipulated. 
by what you see on your TV screen and who is involved and uh, why. And what we watch certainly affects our spiritual well-being. And what we are being served up by the entertainment industry is little more than the merciless destruction of the soul, dressed up in the attractive garb of amusement and pimped to the audience by agenda-driven media companies. It is the stirring of the basest instincts of the sinful fallen nature of mankind for profit. It is media prostitution. Jesus said the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. Right, let's turn to God's word. We're going to read from Second Timothy. And we're looking at two passages just to help us with our examination of this subject. If you haven't got a Bible with you, there's one in the pew. You should be able to reach out and, uh, and take it and read from it. So Second Timothy chapter 1, first of all. Second Timothy chapter 1, reading from verse 2. This book is written to Timothy. My dearly beloved son, grace, mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve from my forefathers with pure conscience that without ceasing I have remembrance of thee in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see thee, being mindful of thy tears that I may be filled with joy. When I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and in thy mother Eunice, and I am persuaded that in thee also. Wherefore I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Turn over to chapter 3. Chapter 3 and verse 10. But thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience, persecutions, afflictions, which came on to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, but out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. But even evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But continue thy in the things which thou hast learned, and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through Christ, through faith, 
which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Amen. Let's look at the battle for your mind and for your soul. Dodsworth and Fagan in that book that I showed you a moment ago say, and I quote, there is a battle for human attention. More than that, your opponents want to persuade you. They include the all too obvious advertisers and marketers, but also big data and predictive analytics, PR and lobbying. Some of the forces of the information battlefield are governments and their agencies. Are they friend or foe? It is not always easy to tell. You would hope your own government is an ally, but it is certainly seeking to nudge you into being a good citizen using subliminal techniques. And governments also command bot and troll armies on social media, in addition to the older propaganda techniques. It is open season on delving into and rewiring our brains. The World Economic Forum is meeting over in Davos. One of the people who are heavily involved in that organization is a man called Noah Harari. Have you heard of him? Noah Harari thinks, and I quote from him, we humans should get used to the idea that we are no longer mysterious souls. We are now hackable animals. That's what he thinks and believes. So I want to use Timothy, the newly installed pastor at the church at Ephesus, as a representative case and a model for our examination of this subject. Timothy was a young man, and he was ministering to a church in a dangerous situation, in a city that had a huge pagan influence and a huge pagan population. With all that that meant in the first century, the sexual immorality centered around the worship of a massive pagan temple, dealing with the ongoing temptations of readily available fornication and sexual gratification, which would have been placed daily before the eyes of Christian believers simply going about their business in the city marketplaces. The city was institutionally anti-Christian, and the dangers of ending your days in a Roman amphitheatre, being speared by gladiators, being ripped apart by wild beasts, or being burned to death to provide entertainment for the rabble were always present. Second Timothy 3 and 12, and Paul writes in warning, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. So you can see that the situation in the city in which Timothy was living was morally dangerous and corrupt, very much like today. But there were more subtle dangers. There were unseen hazards assailing the Christian believer and the local assembly. Dangers coming from devious practitioners of 
manipulative influences upon the heart and upon the soul. So in chapter 3, Paul warns this young pastor of these complex dangers. He says in 2 Timothy 3 and 13 that evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Isn't that true? And isn't that true in the present situation? Don't we see evil men and seducers? And isn't it getting worse? These evil men and seducers were not only outside the church, but they were even inside the visible church in Timothy's day. So, let's ask the question, what would these evil men and seducers want to attack, want to change? Let's look for a moment at Timothy's life, his upbringing, his godly moral standards, and see how he was a product of godly influences on his life. Look at verse 5 in chapter 1, for example. And you'll see there that Timothy had a family. He, his, his understanding, his worldview was shaped by his family. When I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith, unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and thy mother Eunice, and am persuaded that in thee also. Now the fundamental basis of a Christian society in the, in the moral sense, the, the fundamental basis of moral conservatism is the family, the family unit. And the family unit is seriously under attack, not just in Timothy's day, but in ours. Timothy was raised in a family where there could be a godly influence upon his life. John Stott here says Paul refers in this paragraph both, both to his own and to Timothy's ancestry. He talks literally in verse 3 about his ancestors and to Timothy's mother and his grandmother. Timothy is to some extent, uh, humanly speaking at least, the product of his family inheritance. Do you see that? most formative influence on all of us will have been our parents and our home life and I suppose to a lesser extent the type of civilization into which we are born. Timothy was of mixed parentage. His father was a Greek, his mother was a Jew, a Jewess, who along with his grandmother had come to faith in Christ and they had taught him the scriptures, the Old Testament in the family home, those formative years, the early days of his life, spent learning the ways of God from his mother's knee, learning the scriptures which make you wise unto salvation. That's the importance of the family. Can I just remark, digress for a moment, to say that we cannot underestimate the importance of the family in Christian education. Today there are many Christians who think that it is the responsibility of the church to rear their children for them in a godly manner. It is not. God instituted the family to be the place where children are nurtured in the ways of the Lord. 
John Calvin wrote, Timothy was reared in his infancy in such a way that he could suck in godliness along with his mother's milk. There's the first thing we learn about Timothy. He had godly family upbringing. And he had godly friends. Look at verse 4. Paul was greatly desiring to see thee, being mindful of thy tears, that I may be filled with joy. Timothy was regarded by Paul as a son. Back in verse 2, to Timothy, my dearly beloved son, certainly a son in the Lord. There was a huge bond of friendship between these two men. It was so strong that whenever they parted company, Timothy had actually shed tears. Importance of Christian friendship in our nurturing. In earlier years in this country, we would have had lots of opportunities for that. I can tell you that quite often you would take funeral services for people in their latter years of life, back up in their 70s and 80s and 90s. And when you try to delve into their history and you ask their relatives what kind of a childhood they would have had, they'll often say to you, oh, you know, life revolved around the local church. They would have gone to church in those days three times on the Lord's Day. They would have gone to maybe organizations in the church throughout the week. They would have gone to the youth club on a Saturday evening. They would have... and." there would have been an opportunity for every family to come, even if they only nominally belonged to a church. The children would still have gone to meetings. They would still have gone to youth clubs and organizations. And these things have largely gone from society. In verse 3, we find that Timothy had prayer support. One of the things that's under attack most in this country is prayer. In verse 3, I thank God whom I serve with from my forefathers with pure conscience that without ceasing I have remembrance of thee in my prayers night and day. He belonged to a group of Christians who prayed for each other. And I'm sure that extended beyond Paul, who mentions his personal prayer for Timothy here. Now think how that has changed, because when I went to school back in the 1960s, a long time ago now, we had prayers daily in school. State secondary school. I would say probably the roughest state secondary school in the country. And we were gathered into assembly every morning, the whole lot of us. We were led in prayer, either by a local minister or by one of the teachers or the headmaster. And we had a school hymn book. You wouldn't see that in a school these days. There's a case recently I just came across where a Muslim pupil in England is suing the local primary school because the school doesn't allow for prayer. If he, he may well get away with it. But imagine if a Christian mother or father were to go into the school and say, 
we want prayer for our children. We're going to sue you if we don't. You, you would, they would be chased. There'd be no opportunity for that. Young Timothy had prayer. Christians who prayed for each other, and that possibly extended outside just personal prayer here by Paul. Multiculturalism has destroyed prayer in our schools. Well, of course, one of the most important things is that Timothy was led to the Lord as a child. Um, and he had a ministry. He, he was led by the Lord into ministry. In verse 6, Paul says, I put thee in remembrance that I stir up the gift of God which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. Of course, he had a gift of God. He was a Christian who had personal experience of the work of God, the Holy Spirit, convicting him of sin, bringing him to Christ, giving him new life, working repentance and faith in his life. He had been commissioned and ordained for the Lord's work, but the work of God goes beyond his regenerative work among the elect. God is at work in this world. It is God who is restraining the very forces of evil. In Second Thessalonians 2 and 7, Paul writes, For the mystery of iniquity doth already work, only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. How much worse would this awful world be if... God were to leave it, abandon it to its deserved fate. Now, thinking back over Timothy's life, thinking about his family and his godly friendship and the training and opportunity for prayer and the early opportunity to come to Christ, to know his salvation, those are the principles of moral rectitude. That would change society for the better. Those are the very foundations of a decent, God-fearing society that are largely absent from modern society. We no longer live in a society where the Ten Commandments are taught in our schools, where nominally Christian standards are respected. We live in a family, in a society where family units are largely breaking down. We live in a society with absent fatherhood. I remember going to take an assembly in a school in Belfast and the teacher, who was a Christian man, told me that when I went to talk to the boys and girls, I must not talk about mommies and daddies because most of the children didn't know what a daddy was. That was in Belfast, in East Belfast. Uh, families are broken down. Fathers are absent. Church attendance has fallen among the general population. Prayer is devalued. It's even banned by the secular authorities in certain places. Men and women living in open rebellion against God. My argument here, my hypothesis, is that these influences of basic decency and our traditional moral values based on biblical precepts that made this country different from other nations across the world, pagan nations, Muslim nations, what gave us the, the, the edge on other places is the fact that we had a Christian basis for our society. 
and those biblical precepts that we see in Timothy's life. The nuclear family, the mummy and daddy, raising the children, it's under attack. The idea of godly friendship, that's under attack. Prayer is under attack. This is at heart what we're talking about here this evening. This use of the media to change minds and alter society is a spiritual battle. And it's a battle. It's a battle that is being waged by satanic underlings, the ungodly men and women who formed the governments and cabals and hunters and regimes that rule this present age and who want to destroy every last vestige of traditional Christian morality and doctrine and they are still using subtle and seductive techniques to advance their satanic master's agenda. Now we know they will not succeed. Revelation chapter 21 and verse 8 tells us that the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. But the battle will be bloody and violent. And one of the main arenas of conflict in that battle is inside your head. It is the human mind. It is a battle for the soul. And the plan is to deprive you of everything that is decent and honest and truthful. Remember the warning. All that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Okay, there's the battleground. There's what's being undermined. There's what they're after. A godless society. Let's see some of the examples. So televisions were invented in the 1920s. The world's first regular television service was launched by the BBC in November 1936. It transmitted just about four hours of programmes every day from Alexandra Palace in London. You could only get it if you owned a TV set in the London area, but needless to say it became successful. It soon spread and eventually, of course, as we know, it came here to Northern Ireland and local shops began to display and demonstrate the TV set. Don't you remember years ago, those of you who are my age anyway, or maybe a little younger, remember going into the city, walking down uh, North Street, and looking into the window of the TV set, and you saw all these ranks of TV screens, all showing different programs in shop windows. And people soon began to want one for themselves. I remember when it arrived in our house, we didn't have one up until I was about maybe 10 or 11 year old. Of course, only well-off homes could afford to own one. The rest of us would rent a set from Foster's and the Castlereagh Road or from Red Effusion or one of these people. And we had to pay for our viewing hours. There'd be a slot on the back of the television. Put in the money. 
And down in rural areas, um, salesmen would travel door to door selling the new technology. Down in the Arts Peninsula, one old man, a local of the member of the local Brethren Assembly, got a call and knock at the door from one of these salesmen from a big shop in Newtonards, and the salesman came in and he told him about the television. He brought one in out of the car and he plugged it in and he set the wee aerial on top, the two-pronged aerial, and he tuned it up and got it going and got a bit of a picture of sorts and soon the screen burst into life and the old fellow was mesmerised and he agreed to the sale and was just about to sign the rental contract when the salesman overdid it. He oversold. He exclaimed, You've made the right decision, sir. This TV set will bring the world right into your living room. And the old brother and fellow says, It'll what? <laughs> he says, You'll know about bringing the world into my house. Get out and get your TV set with you. I never had a TV set since that. Well, what he feared has certainly come to pass. In more ways than one, the TV has brought the world right into our homes. Let's not downplay its benefits, of course. Television has definitely broadened our horizons geographically. It has entertained us in these dark winter evenings. It has been used for educational purposes, but it does have a dark side. It has several dark sides, and it may well be that the advantages of the TV far outweigh, the disadvantages of the TV far outweigh the advantages. Back to Laura Dodsworth and Patrick Fagan, who wrote, Television has contributed to propaganda and persuasion becoming increasingly sophisticated widely practiced and accepted as part of modern society. Despite complex media ecosystems and the fragmentation of audiences, people continue to regard television as an authoritative source of information and a fount of entertainment. According to Ofcom, TV is still the UK's most popular source of news. So let's think of a few of the nudgers target areas on the TV. And the first one, of course, has to be human sexuality. That's the big one, isn't it? Way back in 2014, I published an article online and I titled it Gorging on Filthy Media Pig Swill. Catchy wee title. <laughs> Guaranteed to read that. In that article, I described an evening's viewing. It was Thursday, the 9th of January, 2014. And I'd just come home from a long, stressful day, and I decided that after tea time, I would sit in an armchair for a couple of hours and relax with Jeanette in front of the television. So I wrote down in the article what I was offered that evening by way of viewing. Well, first of all, there was Emmerdale. It was a story about two lesbians who want to have a baby. And they're using the willing ex-husband of one of the lesbians to provide a sperm donation. And of course in Emmerdale, this is all perfectly normal and natural and acceptable and everyone is very supportive. Meanwhile, in the same program, a little girl, the very same subject, has declared, and I quote, Jesus loves everybody. 
And then leads the lesbians in a prayer that one of them will be able to conceive. So then we switched over and there was Birds of a Feather. It was a classic sitcom. They had revived it after a few years because they had run out of ideas. It was smutty, sexual innuendo the whole way through. The object of that innuendo, the old slapper of the show, is applying for a job in a supermarket. And she's warned not to make a pass at the the manager because the manager is married to his husband, Cyril. At nine o'clock there was Benidorm. Another smutty, pointless sitcom, too daft to even consider watching. So I switched the channel over to BBC One, where Silent Witness was on. Now that's right up my street. I love a good police drama. Anything involving forensics and pathology, that's my kind of thing. Except the storyline is about a gay man who's been charged with murdering his lover. And as the story progresses, more gay men are being murdered. And when a solicitor is asked by the doctor why he wanted to help a convicted, by a doctor, why he wanted to help a convicted man secure an appeal, the solicitor replies, Oh, I found Jesus. Stunned silence by the doctor until she realizes that needless to say, he's only joking. Found Jesus. Big laugh. Every program had a homosexual, anti-Christian element that night. And it's quite typical of most nights. And there was me thinking that homosexuals made up 2-3% to of the entire population. And yet there's hardly a program that doesn't have a so-called gay storyline. But sure, we can't complain. Christians... Christians feature too, don't they? Aye, they do. There's always the idiotic, sexually immoral vicar. The criminally inclined, sexually promiscuous woman vicar who was in Emmerdale. Or the gay-affirming little girl I was telling you about who loves Jesus. Or the so-called lesbian Christians who featured for a long time in Coronation Street. There's even the odd so-called hellfire and brimstone type clergyman like the one in an episode of Midsummer Murders who while preaching repentance was surreptitiously bumping off people including of course the kindly gay professor a very sad happenstance for his young gay lover who was heartbroken by losing his love interest even though he was half the old professor's age And still it was on. Late last year, 2023, there was a trailer for an exciting police drama series on BBC. So I said to Jeanette, we'll watch it. And if we watch the first episode, we'll kind of have a bit of a competition. Let's play Spot the Lesbian. And we'll see who gets the lesbian first. Wasn't too hard. The lesbian's usually the main character. In fact, she was the lead detective. She was the problem solver. She was the brave, morally principled warrior for justice who would solve the mystery of the murder and who had committed the crime while at the same time maintaining her home life, her lesbian relationship with her wife, also a heroic 
law enforcement officer who just incidentally happened to be pregnant with her wife's baby. At one point, one of the wives asked the other wife, are you speaking here as my commanding officer or as the mother of my baby? And she was having the baby and she was asking this other person, are you speaking as the mother of my baby? Now the point I'm Well, it was fiction, of course. The point I'm making here is that that storyline could just as easily have contained a white, male, middle-class hero with a wife and 2.4 kids without in any way affecting the plot or the outcome. The whole lesbian subtext was totally incidental to the plotline. So while we're drawn in to watch a thriller drama, we're being subtly in undertones fed a message. The message of that drama wasn't that there was a crime that needed to be solved. The underlying message was that lesbians are bold, confident, successful women who can balance a demanding career career and a family life that homosexuals care for their family, that lesbian couples can have babies together, that they can be good parents together. None of that is integral to the story that's being told. It is information that is being conveyed by the medium, by the underlying text, the subtext of series. Of course, not just human sexuality, sure, it's not race features largely. Dodsworth and Fagan give us another example. They say the British population is about 3% black, yet black people make up about 8% of on-screen contributions, according to a report from the Creative Diversity Network. A YouGov poll found that Brits estimate the population to be around 20% black. Of course, nothing wrong with black people being on TV or black representation. The issue is that the media presents a distortion which seems to be affecting the public's perception of reality. And climate. That's a popular one too. Have you noticed how the media deals with the global warming alarmism but ramps up the fear on an almost nightly basis? We had barely finished the 2023 Christmas schedule of repeats whenever ITV News was back on the climate bandwagon. Not by accident. It's a good example of how the government and other sinister forces and nudge units and psychological behaviour modification teams are working behind the scenes to influence what you see and hear. Climate messaging is deliberately embedded in popular dramas and a news content to change your thinking and behaviour, and it's not even subtle. They go back again to Dodsworth and Fagan, who wrote this. Advice such as frequency of exposure to green themes could be enhanced by building ecological beliefs and traits into core characters within a show, so that green issues can fluently be raised time and time again. It sounds potentially tedious, although it might be effective. You would see fewer characters carelessly drinking from a plastic bottle. 
Suggestions continue with a family could discuss reducing their waste in a comedy show. New segments could explore barriers to acting green and share stories for overcoming them. An episode of a drama could include references to buying an electric vehicle and, of course, characters should order vegetarian options in restaurants. They intend to shove the plant-based, planet-saving burger down your throat. Sky, BBC, ITV, Channel 4, RTE, BritBox and Discovery have all actively pledged to adopt a hard editorial bias and increase the amount and quality of their climate coverage. Quoting from Dodsworth and Fagan, of course. I suppose it was really during the COVID alarm that we became more aware that our own government is involved in manipulating our minds. During the COVID emergency, the public was gaslit by the media on an almost daily basis, and much of it at the government's behest. Gaslighting technique extensively used in the media to make you question yourself, to make you question your memory, to make you doubt your trust in yourself, to doubt even your sanity, what you're feeling, sometimes who you think you are. It appears as somebody branding you as crazy or calling you a conspiracy theorist or far right or a slur that was used against me on one occasion a racist, fascist bigot. I mean, can you imagine me being a racist, fascist bigot? Never. All I did to earn that uh, title was to say that the Glorious Revolution of 1688 was a good thing. And I was immediately branded as a racist. During COVID, that technique was used very creatively and extensively to make you comply with what other ways would be seen as ridiculous restrictions and mandates. Do you remember the phrase that was used, don't kill granny? I mean, you have to stay six away, six feet away from people and stay indoors and keep in your bubble because who wants to be responsible for the death of that sweet old lady who rocked you on your knee when you were a baby? Don't kill granny. Remember how they intimidated people into doing the self-testing and promoted the lockdowns and the constant stream of propaganda and the masks and the social distancing and the control and movements, how they encouraged spying on neighbours. I was just thinking about it as I drove up to the church here tonight that during the was it beginning of 2021, we were reported here for having a meeting. One of our neighbours in a, a local house here, snitched on us to the police. Uh, it's like something you would have done in East Germany back in communist days. What are they doing to people? The vaccine mandates and the passports, and the safe and effective lies from governments and public health experts, and the use of end-of-life protocols in our care homes and hospitals and the censorship and the deplatforming and the destruction of the reputations of brilliant scientists who opposed what was being done and were absolutely right to oppose it. 
Well, nowadays, media extends well beyond the TV. Phones, mobile devices, computers, they're all being used by these seducers, these evil men and women. And by their interactive nature, they're perhaps an even greater danger than television. I was talking to a gentleman in Belfast recently, and he said to me, do you watch much on TikTok? I've never seen TikTok. I've never even seen it. He was shocked. He says to me, you should get it. It's great. It's so interesting and compelling that one night I started watching TikTok at 11 o'clock when the wife went to bed and I watched it till she came to see if it was okay and it turned out it was 4 o'clock in the morning and he's recommending this thing to me. And internet pornography is a curse in society. Even in Christendom. All media fact society just by its characteristics. Even going to watch a film A film can transcend our normal conceptions of linear time. You've seen these manipulative techniques where they propel you backwards and forwards. I can't follow them, but it's a deliberate technique to keep your mind active. We we need to talk about gestalt theories. Hi, but you've seen films and television programs where one minute you're in the past and the next minute you're in the present and backwards and forwards it goes, rapidly changing, rapidly changing geographical locations, keeping the mind in a state of anticipation and eagerness for more information, making us unknowingly susceptible to the subtle messages and signals that are sometimes underlying the storyline and it's all so subtly done that you're glued to the screen you're being influenced in ways you don't even realize you're being bombarded with with this stuff and the experts at this kind of manipulation are the producers of programs and advertising agencies where political correctness and and diversity and virtue signaling are always prominent. We are indeed, as Harari says, becoming hackable animals. Let's move on. We're nearly out of time. We want to look at some defense strategies. How do we as Christians guard our minds against external influences? Influences that are being deliberately deployed to change our thought processes, to downgrade our moral standards, to destroy our Christian biblical worldviews, and ultimately to drag us away from God's kingdom and to endanger our souls in eternity. It is a spiritual battle, so our strategy must be spiritual. Second Corinthians 10, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God, to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations, and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ, and having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Let's see some defense strategies. Let's go back to Second Timothy in your Bible and look at verse 7. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. 
first thing to do. And I say this to all of us here, is to make sure that we are trusting in the Lord with all of our heart. God does not give you the spirit of fear. Are you living in fear? Have you noticed that one of the tactics that's constantly being used by the nudgers and the mind manipulators is the tactic of fear? The regime, the government, the worldwide technocrats, the people meeting in Davos, they want you cowering in fear so you can turn to them for protection. That's the, that's what's the, what's going on behind the climate alarmism. Have you noticed even this past couple of days the amount of fear-mongering that has gone on about the weather? You shouldn't go out through your door. You know, the sight of skiff of snow and you've got to stay at home. There's a constant, almost nightly media barrage of fear-mongering and alarmism. A leaked report from the Northern Ireland Executive in 2020 regarding COVID, showed that the projected best case scenario for COVID deaths in Northern Ireland was around 250. The Northern Ireland executive, I'm not, they're they're clamouring. I shouldn't say this, but I've started, so I'll finish. They're clamouring for to bring back the executive. They say, let them go. We don't need them. Here's what they did back in 2000, 2020, 2020. Here's what they did. They got that figure of 250 projected deaths from COVID and they ignored it and they hid it deliberately and publicized a worst case scenario deliberately to keep us afraid. Deliberately to make sure that we would comply with their ridiculous COVID mandates that they were introducing an imitation of a model that was put into place under communist government in China. Why did they do that? Here's why. Because fear never comes from God. Fear comes from the devil. God gives us peace. Isaiah 26 and 3. Thy will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stead on thee because he trusteth in thee. Philippians 4 and 7. The peace of God which passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. If you see something on your television that is making you afraid, it's not of God, it's of the devil. God does not give us the spirit of fear. So we need to refocus our minds away from fear. Verse 7 again. God has given us the spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. Paul's talking here about the work of the Holy Spirit and the believer. Gordon Fee, the commentator, says here that the word spirit should have a capital S. The reasons are textual. They're well outside this talk in But this is not, Paul is not talking here about a human spirit of fear or humanly induced power or love or soundness of mind. We're not talking here about listening to a TED talk and feeling better or going to listen to some motivational speaker. 
or going for a counseling session or doing mindfulness exercises. It is the Holy Spirit who gives us these three stated qualities. The opposite of satanic fear is God's power. Not deploying our own powers that we have within ourselves, but receiving the power of God, the Holy Spirit's power, as demonstrated in the conversion of a sinner in renewing and reorientating of that sinner's heart and the opening of that sinner's mind to the things of God and the enmity of this world. Second Corinthians 10 and verse 4 to 5, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but are mighty through God, to the putting down of strongholds. The opposite of satanic fear is power and it is love. It is God's love. The love of God for sinners, agape love. Love that loves us when we're unlovable. The very opposite of the false, sickly, sweet, saccharine love that the world's media promotes. The opposite of the love that you see in Emmerdale or EastEnders. That's the love that never lasts. The love that's based on sexual attraction or physical appearance. The love that promotes sexual promiscuity where just about everybody in the community has had sexual relationships with multiple partners. A situation that they present as normal as being what people do. It is far from an accurate representation of normal society. God's love is pure. It's untainted by human sin and desire. It is the steadfast love of the Lord that never changes, never ends. It's the antidote to the tainted love of this world. It is the gift of God, the Holy Spirit in our lives. It should make us aware of what love really is and what it is not. Ephesians 3 and 17 that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith that ye being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge the opposite of fear is soundness of mind Now look, that doesn't mean that Christians indwelt by the Spirit will always be mentally well. Christians get depressed like everybody else. And they suffer mental illnesses like everybody else. So we need to understand that word. It's a difficult word. Uh, Sophronismos is the Greek. It's sometimes translated as self-discipline or prudence. I find in situations like this, the Amplified Bible helps us a wee bit. It acts like a commentary. And the Amplified Bible reads, For God did not give us a spirit of timidity or cowardice or fear, but he has given us the spirit of power and of love, and here it is, and of sound judgment and personal discipline. These are abilities that result in a calm well-balanced mind and self-control. That's exactly what we need. And that's exactly what the Holy Spirit gives us. He gives us self-control. He gives us personal discipline. Maybe just the personal discipline to when you when you're watching television and you hear the awful blasphemies and the swearing that's going on, that you just simply reach for the control and switch the thing off. That's what the Holy Spirit gives us. The ability to refocus our minds on godly things. Paul put it like this in Romans 12 and 2. Be not conformed to this world, 
but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Or in Philippians 4 and 8, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. So, our tactic, make sure you're trusting in Christ. Refocus your mind under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Understand that your sure defense comes from the Lord because those three qualities there, power and love and a sound mind, I want you to see that those are nouns, not verbs. They're not something you must do. They're something that already exists. They're gifts that God has given to you by the Holy Spirit to all believers. Everyone who trusts in Christ should have this built-in resistance to satanic manipulation wherever it is being applied. The strongest offense against the wiles of the devil is to be a Christian believer, to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, to put on the whole armor of God and take a stand. Look at verse 8. Be not thy therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Don't you be ashamed of Jesus in these days. Speak up. Stand up and speak up. And if something's wrong or something seems wrong, then compare and contrast what you're saying on your screen with biblical truth and tell your family and tell your friends and make them aware of it. And when you do that, expect pushback and expect persecution. Because Paul says here to Timothy, but be thy partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. If you speak up, it won't make you popular. Take your share of suffering for the gospel and continue to declare the truth regardless of the circumstances according with the power of God for his power is invincible. Verse 8. A few weeks ago when we were talking about this in here, Anna said to me, wonder why it is that so many Christians fall under the influence of media manipulation. I wonder that too. Why are so many Christians falling for it? On Twitter, or the acts as they call it nowadays, one secular commentator wrote, If you told most people here that their opinions are being constantly manipulated by sophisticated means, they'd probably say, I know what I think. I have the mental strength to resist propaganda and psyops. But the sad truth is that they and we don't. And the techniques now are so powerful that no one escapes. I think that statement might include the average Christian who realistically is just as susceptible to media manipulation as the next person. In fact, some or many Christians may be well aware of the dangers, but are so addicted to the media that they deliberately ignore the warning signs anyway. To escape the psychological techniques that are being used needs a high degree of discernment. 
a spiritual gift that, as we know, is sadly lacking in the modern church. Somehow, we need to convince Christians if something about the TV program you are watching strikes you as being different compared with real life. Something's out of place. Something from anything, maybe from green product placement to exaggerated news stories, then there's a high possibility that you might have spotted some attempted social engineering. And we must pray for the Lord's people that God will give them discernment and protect their minds and give them the spirit of discernment that they may abide in Christ and develop a truly Christian worldview and defend and promote Christian values in their own lives and in the lives of others so that they may have a clear conscience before God and be found faithful at the last day. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 9. As I pray that your love may abound more and more in real knowledge and practical insight. Verse 10, so that you may learn to recognize and treasure what is excellent, identifying the best and distinguishing moral differences, and that you may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ. Outside the church in our pagan society, this media manipulation, this Marxist-driven agenda, this manipulation of the mind continues unabated. The gullible masses lap it up, they call it entertainment. And what their eyes are watching is reinforcing the destruction of our society and the darkness that already exists in their own sin-cursed hearts and minds. It is amusement. It's to stop you thinking. Amusement in the proper sense of the word. The devil wants to keep us entertained by this filth. Wants to stop us from thinking about what really matters. Wants to keep our minds away from the fact that one day this life is going to stop. It's going to end. And except that the Lord returns soon, that we will all be placed in a grave. And our souls will stand before God in judgment. And if we are still clothed in our, unri- our own righteousness, those filthy, sinful rags, having never considered eternity, having never thought that Christ died an atoning death on the cross for sinners, never thought about his offer of forgiveness to all those who repent and trust him, if we are amused into eternity, by the media, then because our sins are unforgiven, we will be lost forever. And the devil's media pimps will have done their job well. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, please help to make it better known by opening the podcast app on your phone or mobile device. Then, search for The Semper Reformata Podcast. Subscribe and give it a 5-star rating. See you next time.